Welcome to the Montage Podcast. Uh, welcome back to the Montag Shed. Uh, we're here in the Grover offices, uh, in a shed next to a railway line, uh, next to a dance studio. So you should be able to hear plenty of noise uh, of all different sorts uh, as we're recording. So uh, with the companion podcast to the online magazine Montag.wtf and uh, we're training our sights on the technology of the future and recording with a mixture of horror, intrigue and ambivalence. Uh, I'm Joe Sparrow, the editor of uh, Montag magazine and sitting on my left is the ever capable beating heart of Montag, Catherine. Hi Catherine. Hi Joe. Uh, Lovely to hear your voice resonating around this tiny wooden box that we're sitting in. Uh, It's uh, a pleasure to see you as always, of course. And um, well, it's episode 15, and uh, here we are again. Uh, Catherine and I are the only ones reporting for duty, as mysterious overlord Tom is still absent. He's finished. Uh, we've heard his experiential information gathering exercise uh, as a cruise ship captain on the Norwegian fjords and has apparently moved on to literally new pastures. As ever, we're not quite sure when he'll return, but. Only this morning, we received this message via carrier pigeon, the text of which was cross-stitched into a frankly delightful blanket. Dearest Montag friends, my fjord fiesta came to an end, and, still seeking true enlightenment, I segued across the continents and am now firmly ensconced in a wildly expensive, silent goat-herding, deep relaxation retreat in the Himalayas. The view is exquisite. My diet is mainly centred around goat's cheese, and I haven't heard anything about Brexit for a month. It's almost paradise, except the goat's wool clothing I have knitted is pretty scratchy, and fabric softener is in short supply at 5,000 metres above sea level. Please send a bottle of Downy Fluffy or Gain ASAP. Yours, Kid Dingley, Grand Overlord Tom. Catherine, any, any uh, feelings about... Tom's worldwide adventures, uh, goat herding in silence at the moment. Yeah, I'm very jealous. It sounds like the best option, actually, given the alternatives, which is winter in Berlin or Brexit. So congratulations, Tom. Hope you're having a good time over there, and uh, we hope to see you again soon. Montag.wtf and the Montage is brought to you by Grover, the fresh alternative to owning things. Check out the latest stuff to rent from Grover right now at grover.com, and you can enjoy tomorrow today. Uh, Let's get back to Montag. What is Montag? It's a magazine, a weekly email, and a podcast. Uh, It's stuffed with features, short fiction, and other bits and pieces about human connections to technology. And the Montage, this podcast right here, is where we can dig into some of the smash hits from the mag and the mail-out. Don't forget... Uh, If you uh, don't like digital magazines, and who does, frankly, the gorgeous print edition, printed onto paper with real ink, is currently being splurged uh, all over Germany. You might see them if you're living in Hamburg or Berlin and Leipzig, Um, and uh, if you want one for yourself and you don't live in those cities, uh, you can buy one uh, following the link just below this podcast. So, we're still uh, digging into issue three of Montauk, and uh, in this episode we're talking about two more of the um, the best articles from it. Twitterature, how Twitter has changed the art of literature, all the way from the bard to the baby shoes, and sound affects music might be your new medicine. Could Muzak soon replace Prozac? Uh, plus, coming up in between, Quiz Queen Catherine has a brand new quiz which craftily comprises chaos in the mystery montage.
So uh, for the final time, until we move on to issue four, both stories, uh, this podcast are from Montag issue three, and this is Twitterature. The art of storytelling is a deeply ingrained facet of the human experience, and the desire to hear a tale unfold is part of the reason you're listening to this podcast right now. But how does a radical shift in the materials, platforms, and the medium affect the story itself? Well, Catherine wrote a fascinating article about it uh, called Twitterture. Catherine. Can you uh, explain more, please? Yes, I spend a lot of my time on Twitter, and I also love to read. So I wrote an article for issue three called Twitterature, How Twitter Has Changed the Art of Literature from the Bard to Baby Shoes. And here's how it starts. To discern how literature as an art form has been changed by technology depends on defining literature in a certain way, that it is a series of words, printed in ink on paper, meant to be read from beginning to end. Even before the computer, as digital media scholar Janet Murray has written in Inventing the Medium, authors like Jorge Luis Borges were using nonlinear narrative constructions to create hypertext fiction. Today, we'll look at a platform that has irrevocably changed our relationship to words, their function, and form. On Twitter, the, quote, meaningless noise and silence can be overwhelming, but the strict restrictions, more on how strict they really are later, have created a new literary genre. And within this new format, people are telling new kinds of stories, sharing perspectives that aren't often heard through printed literature or couldn't be expressed in a traditional format. So essentially, you know, Twitter has changed how we consume media, news, messaging, um, c- communication with people powerful and not powerful, for better or worse. And we've sort of taken that for granted, even if it's brought some painful results in uh, worldwide politics. How does that relate to how we think of literature itself? So in this article, I wrote about a few specific examples that seem to fall under the category of capital L literature, which were people using Twitter to remix Shakespeare and this William Carlos Williams poem and this dubiously attributed Ernest Hemingway story. Uh, And I spend a lot more time at the end of the article talking about these short uh, flash fictions or how people used Twitter threads to roll out whole novels and stories. And now there are actually a bunch of new ways that it's being used. One of the things that I think Twitter does really well right now is aggregating content from other apps and platforms. So two accounts I would mention now in how Twitter has changed the whole media landscape is um, at SheRatesDogs. Have you heard of this account? I have heard of this account. Yeah, it compiles really awful profiles and text exchanges from Tinder. And uh, the at Reddit ships account, it posts screen captures of posts from the relationships subreddit. Right, okay. And a lot of those are accused of being fabricated, but they're still really great creative writing exercises regardless of whether they're true stories. So Twitter is not only evolving as a platform for its own stories, but I think it's kind of aggregating text content from all these other apps and and telling stories that way. Does this have, you know, when we think, you know, for an outsider, when I think of literature, I think of, you know, classical literature or 
creative writing in its more traditional sense or people self-publishing even. But this is reinventing the actual act of writing and consumption of writing itself in that people are, like you say, you know, the relationship uh, advice uh, subreddit is generally regarded to be dubious at best and yet people are uh, absorbing it in a sort of creative sense through being remixed through Twitter. So does this actually affect how people are writing or how they are talking about writing or... Well, I mentioned Jorge Luis Borges in the introduction and and the excerpt of this article, and that's because he's considered the granddaddy of this hypertext fiction. So with The Garden of Forking Paths and The Library of Babel, both of which were published in the 40s, he kind of pioneered this concept of stories that can have infinite readings. So one of, one of my favorite examples that I linked to in the article was this short story by Jennifer Egan called Black, Bo- Black Box. She wrote a couple of best-selling novels. She's won a Pulitzer. And in 2012, The New Yorker tweeted Black Box as a short story, one line at a time. And it's a very cool read. You can still read it online now in, in one big piece. Uh, and it's it's the internal narrative of this female secret agent in the future, and she has, like, cartilage-embedded microphones and tear duct-activated cameras and, like, a mind-reading activity logger and has turned her body into a weapon. And this is something that is commonplace, like, ordinary people being outfitted with technology for espionage purposes. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the subject matter, very Montauk, very futuristic, and even in 2012, uh, a literary kind of uh, publication like The New Yorker was, was saying, hey, we can tweet stories now, we can tweet entire works of fiction. Right, and, and so it's actually... And so what's that about then? It's not. It's, we think it, you know, my sort of initial thought was that you know, when you talk about Twitter and literature, it's about the shortness of the tweet. But actually, it's the democratization of accessing people on the go, anywhere, live, easily and quickly. Just as much as it is about the sort of short form element and the the structural element. Yeah, I, at first I think it was a lot about the length when Twitter only allowed 140 characters. That definitely forced people to develop uh, an art of storytelling that fit in those parameters. And there were some Twitter fiction contests that I was also referencing in the article where it was like, tell an entire story in one tweet. Um, but interactivity-wise... I think that is something that is still really taking off and happening right now. So I researched an article for issue five, Work and Play, about alternate reality games. Mm -hmm. And I found the Twitter feed for this game called The Sun Vanished, which is told through a series of tweets by someone who's in the midst of surviving this weird apocalypse where the sun disappears and the interaction is done through Twitter polls. So users help them decide, like, do they drive through a creepy abandoned city or do they go around it? And they also interact with other character accounts. Um, And this is definitely still an ongoing um, thread. Like, these accounts are live. I I just looked them up before this podcast recording and they were tweeting today, like, I'm in this creepy house. Like, oh, I I might, you know, go 
stay here another night or should I try to siphon gas from the car that's out, you know, on blocks in the front yard? Right, so it's a, it's a sort of very long form in, in terms of t- temporal nature. Yeah, I actually, I ran across a one-off story the other day uh, from a comedy writer named uh, Siobhan Thompson at Vorney Tom. That's V-O-R-N-I-E-T-O-M. And it was this choose-your-own-adventure story. So it starts with you uh, being, like, in the corner office of this uh, high-rise building in Manhattan, and you're the youngest VP in your whole company, and then you look out the window, and something flies into the river. And what do you do? And then there's a poll, and the options are keep watching, call for your colleagues, get to work, or check Twitter. And because <laughs> because it was taking place on Twitter, people on Twitter actually voted for check Twitter. So that won in the poll, and then the next part she writes is, you check Twitter to see what everyone else is saying. You've clicked over to trending topics and seen that hashtag East River Asteroid is trending when, boom, it hits the water right outside your building. Um, so then there's another poll, and it goes this... It turns into this neat story about aliens, but um, I don't want to give too much away in right. case you want to read it. That's why no, that I, sounds really cool. Spelled out her handle, um, but with with Bandersnatch from Netflix yeah. and a lot of these other choose your own adventure stuff, like Twine Games and other hypertext fictions, I think are are getting more popular. They're they're easier to create with tools like Twine or be able to do on Twitter just through polls. Do you, do you think that that's you know Bandersnatch obviously is this is the is very of the moment and people were, were amazed by it when it happened. Do you think that the the ground was sort of prepared for that kind of interactive choose your own adventure story not necessarily by those kind of stories on Twitter but by the fact that people are used to seeing stories develop in real time and branch off according to responses when they read a thread on Twitter, for instance? I think Twitter is is following that same trend of people who want to interact with their entertainment. Um, And yeah, it's much easier to do on Twitter. It's much easier for anyone to create a story like that um, and tell it. I think there's still a lot of potential for people to use Twitter in these creative writing ways, even if they're doing something like planting a fake story on our relationships and then maybe using a fake Twitter account to react to that story um, and and kind of develop a life for these characters that only exists online. Right. Okay. Which, I mean, and, and again, which is a, a really uh, new way of looking at the creative writing act to, to, to develop stories that are, are presented as real, but none of it is real. I mean, this, I mean, and that's always been the case with ghost stories around the campfire and things like that anyway but this is done in a uh, it's, it's trying to game the system and, and believe, making people believe in it when actually we all kind of know that it's partially not true um, this is n- sort of a modern phenomenon and yet it isn't what are the, pr- the precedents to Twitter literature whether it's the short form writing or I mean this is something which I guess has been around for a while but we're just seeing it in a new way Famously, of course, you reference to the um, you reference to the Hemingway story about the baby shoes. The Hemingway story is an interesting one because what I was trying to point out was that Twitter and literature have this weird relationship where people are actually creating memes 
out of famous phrases or works of fiction or yeah mostly fiction or poetry actually it's it's mostly fiction and poetry so this this baby shoes uh story you know it's supposed to be like the shortest saddest story ever written for sale baby shoes never worn um it became kind of a joke so when they expanded the character limit on twitter people used this short story as a way to like make a metaphor for what they had done they were ruining the twitter format and and they were saying you know if you add more information to that story like hey i <laughs> i i think i quoted a, a tweet in the article it was like hey i'm just calling about the baby shoes like why are you selling them did your baby not like them like <laughs> um how how worn are they <laughs> like um it's just uh, the, the constraints of Twitter were seen as, as the most beautiful thing about them. And I think that maybe the, the precedent for having the constraints on something that makes it beautiful, like Shakespeare having to fit things in this iambic pentameter or any actual poetic form. I mean, a, a limerick isn't considered, you know, high art, but if you've ever actually tried to write a limerick, it's very difficult. Yes. Yes, it is. And, and like you say, artists have, have forever looked for limitations to, so that they are forced to be creative. I mean, now, six months later or nearly a year later from changing the tweet limit, at the time I was very, <clears throat> I was very adamant that it was a bad idea. And now it, it, I feel like it is kind of right. Has anyone changed their mind in that Twitter community since then? Or are they still mourning the... Or are they, are they setting artificial limits within that 280 character system? I actually haven't... Yeah, I, I forgot, basically, immediately after it happened that yeah. tweets weren't always this long. And a, a doubled limit, you know, 280 characters is still not enough to do very much with. Um, it, it just feels normal now to me, personally. But I also consume, you know, obscene amounts of information on Twitter. It's where I get most of my entertainment and news and this kind of cross-platform pollination um, and I think that happens a lot too because now on on Instagram I'm seeing a lot of Instagram com content is actually screenshots from Twitter <laughs> yeah. or um, even a lot of news content you know when you're watching something and they're saying let us know what you think and on news channels they will be featuring people's Twitter commentary. It's it's really the it's not just the public forum. It's kind of like a like a medium for language in a way that that I would want to compare it to the printed word. Yeah. Like I'm not saying Twitter is equivalent to the printing press, but like yeah, it, it kind it, of is. People compare things senselessly to the invention of printed type all all over the place so i don't know why i would shy away from that metaphor no right. so, i mean it certainly does feel like a major development in terms of the written if you know we ignore sort of embedded media for a moment the, the written word and that boost to 280 characters actually does feel about right now and you can see that with it still makes politicians be succinct you know they still have to get the thought into a nutshell when they're saying something they're just not cutting words like letters out of words anymore and like receiving a weird text message from your younger cousin or something it 
and it feels right. And one thing, one parallel I drew it to, particularly with politics, is that <clears throat> um, I guess this is familiar to most parliaments, but in the UK Parliament, there's something called Hansard, which is a, a sort of searchable and has been going for hundreds of years, a searchable record of everything that's said in the House of Commons. So, and it, But it's broken into indexable paragraphs, all of which are numbered, so it, it's like reading a series of tweets and back and forth and conversations. And there's a kind of weird parallel when you see politicians and the public arguing or politicians and famous people arguing on Twitter. It is a bit like reading Hansard, the official record of, of Parliament, except, you know, obviously not literary or fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the way that it's shaped political discourse, especially in, in the US right now, is totally off the wall. Um, but the uh, other thing I would say about the limit is I don't think anyone really uses all 280 no. characters either. <laughs> no, I've certainly not found myself squeezing things, thoughts into the space as I used to when it was 140. Um, and I, I think that's probably a good thing. So to wrap things up, you know, it does feel like this um, that, that it has genuinely changed um, literature and consumption of stories and storytelling. What do you think is then the greatest impact it's had? Is it the is it the sh the, the focus on short short length writing? Is it the spread? The fact that stories can appear um, in in your pocket in little doses at any time and you can interact with them? Is it the fact that you can allow bots to remix text what is it what's what's the big the biggest impact on where is it going to go do you think in the near future i think it's going to be some convergence of these two trends that we have been talking about the kind of instant um knowledge dissemination amongst like media platforms and journalists and normal people having shitty opinions like i i think the the hive mind kind of aspect like oh this is blowing up on twitter right now um will maybe interact with this interactive storytelling aspect of of how literature is working i would love to see more and more successful and more popular kind of alternate reality game style storytelling where we don't even know if the person who's tweeting who is a, like a mass media phenomenon is a real person. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, and uh, I'm quite pleased that we got to this whole conversation without mentioning Horse Ebooks, uh, who was one of the sort of early, um, is it real, is it a bot, is it an author? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly, I guess it's already happened, but I'd, I'd like to see it happen, you know, outside of weird Twitter, yeah. as they yeah. call it. And you know what? I feel like Twitter bots are kind of over strong words to finish on there that's a that's a that's a planting a big flag i myself have an ebook spot that remixes my tweets and it's been running for i don't know two years and i'm thinking about pulling the plug wow. it never says anything very new or interesting wow. Wow. there you go folks that's you heard it here first twitter bots are dead and uh, we patiently await jk rowling releasing her new work in real time via twitter well, isn't that what she's always doing? I mean, yeah. out of anyone who's a modern literary figure, J.K. Rowling tweets way too much. And on that bombshell, uh, <laughs> Catherine, thank you very much. Um, that was a Twitterature, and the link to the full article, which is definitely worth checking out, is just below the podcast. 
for the montage podcast. So, uh, Catherine, uh, it's time to get quizzical. Um, your reign as quiz queen is now uh, without doubt. Though, of course, this is the first quiz that we've done uh, here on the mystery montage without uh, Grand Overlord Tom, who, because he's taking a vow of silence, cannot take part. Also, the fact that he's in the Himalayas at the moment. So, in, in the past, we've competed, and Tom and I have you know, we'd seen who the winner is. And as we left it, Tom was beating me fairly comprehensively around about, I think, at least 9-4 or something in his favour. I propose that we continue making it a competition so that I can chalk up some wins and uh, bring it back to even. How about that? Yeah, there's no way for you to lose yeah, if there's no one you're playing against but yourself. Yeah, the only the only way I can lose is just in a, a broader sense of being seen as a loser, I guess. Uh, and I'm happy with that if it means that I equalise with Tom. So, what have you got for us this week? So, for the Twitterature special edition mystery montage, I have a quiz for you from... Uh, Two very famous and prestigious Twitter users. One is Drill. Fabulous. He is the Pope of Twitter, the President of Twitter, mm -hmm. and the other is the actual Pope <laughs> at Pontifex, Pope Francis, the wow. first tweeting Pope. Did you know he was the first? I did not know he was the first tweeting Pope. He was the first Pope to use Twitter. Um, so I'm going to read you a handful of tweets, and you will have to tell me if this tweet comes from Pontifex or Drill. Wow. So, okay, fabulous. This is the cool pope. The tweets by the cool pope, or Drill, the, the coolest person in the, the universe. other cool pope. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay right. I'm ready for the task. Here we go. Tweet number one. They should replace the cameras on cell phones with Bibles because the Bible is like a camera into your soul. Oh my god. I... Drill or Pope. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, I didn't actually think it was going to be that difficult. Um, it sounds... All, I, I, now this sounds ridiculous, but it sounds too sensible to be Drill. And yet, this is the... This is the rub with Drill. He's just, he's able to tread that line so carefully. Um, but the cool Pope is the kind of guy who would say something out there without, not trying to be like quirky, he would just say something weird. So I'm going to say Pontifex. Pontifex, real Pope. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was Drill. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> um... <sighs> Tweet number two. Okay. Maybe I can lose. <laughs> Tweet two. With her yes, Mary became the most influential woman in history. Without social networks, she became the first influencer. The influencer of God. <laughs> Drill or Pope. <laughs> God, I don't know now. Virgin Mary, influencer of God. 
tweet from Drill or the actual Pope? Oh, God, I'm going to... God help me, but I'm going to go with the actual Pope again. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> oh, that God. was at Pontifex tweeting during this uh, Panama 2019 conference trying to appeal to wow. the youth. Yeah. Well, wow, would it work for me? I'm down with the Pope. Okay. Um, I've modified my phone to deliver electric shocks each time one of you unfollows me. The pain will make me kinder, humbler, and more powerful. Pope or drill? I mean, that has to be drill. I mean, like, I would like to think the Pope thinks in those terms that he's, he's using electricity to become more powerful and omnipotent, but I'm positive that that's drill. It is drill. I thought maybe the kinder, humbler, and more powerful part sounded popey, but... It does sound popey, if that is the appropriate word. And, uh... Pontifish? Pontifici? Pontificatus. Yes, okay, let's do another one. Okay. God enters history and does so in his original style. Surprise! The god of surprises always surprises us. <laughs> Who tweeted about the god of surprises? Drill or the Pope? Oh, the cool Pope. I can't imagine the Pope would call the god the god of surprises and make that tweet worthy. So I'm, I'm preparing for humiliation here, but I'm going to say that was Drill. No, that was Pope. <laughs> wow, so the cool Pope refers to God as the God of Surprises. The God of Surprises is here. Wow. In this podcast In shed. This shed. Wow. Okay, um, let me give you just one more. Just one more, yeah. Short one. Baptizing my badge and gun in sinner's blood. Oh my God. I would. I don't think. Okay. The only reason I'm going to say this is I don't think the Pope would talk about blood. I think he might be the cool Pope, but I don't think he'd want to. Even though you know blood of Christ, etc. I don't think he'd want to conjure blood in this context. Therefore, that is drill. It was drill, but I'm glad you entertained the Pope's metaphorical badge and gun, <laughs> because the Pope is a cop, and drill is also. <laughs> A, a holy cop. Yeah. Some kind of paladin of Twitter. Yeah, the Pope is is God's cop, essentially. And uh, that I think if it wasn't for the blood part, I would have considered the badge and weapon uh, metaphor. Wow, thanks. So, um, who would you rank highest, the Pope or Drill? Well, let's see who has more followers, I guess. <laughs> Drill's got 1.29 million followers, and Pope Francis Pope Francis has 17.9. Wow! So I think Pope Francis gets to stay Pope. Uh, thanks, Catherine. Uh, an exceptional um, quiz there, um, and revealing that I can lose to myself in the mystery montage. The Montage Podcast is brought to you by Grover. 
Okay, for the second half of this episode, our last episode on Coding Creativity, Montauk Issue 3, we are going to discuss the article, Sound Affects, Music Might Be Your New Medicine. So, like I said, this is taken from Print Issue 3, which is newly available, staggeringly beautiful, and available for a bargain 3 euros on Montauk's Ticktail store. That's ticktail.com slash Montauk. The link is in the description below this podcast. So in Sound Affects, Joe explores how everyone likes music because good music makes them feel good. But what if we could harness the positive power of music and sound in more specific ways? Could we use music to improve our health? Can we make sounds that are tailored specifically to soothe our individual brains? Uh, Joe, would you like to introduce the article where hopefully you answer those questions? Sure, if you can uh, hear me over the booming noise uh, from the dance studio downstairs. But uh, it's it's suitable for this article. Um, Here it goes. It's not a surprise that music can make you feel things, but now we have the technology and the personal data to make it really useful as well. The fact that we take for granted music's power to move and motivate our minds is perhaps its biggest strength. And a slew of new ideas are taking advantage of music's power. By mixing up the biofeedback from your Apple Watch with your sleep patterns from your Fitbit and blending them with the glut of data that your music streaming platform has on you, you could find your life is not just soundtrack to make everything nicer, but more happy, calm, and forgiving. And because it'll be medicine, maybe you can charge your Spotify subscription to your health insurance too. So, what what actually can sounds do in the in the realm of medicine? The, the idea is that in the future we'll be able to make use of noise uh, and sounds and music in a way that would be very, very, very specifically tailored to you, possibly down to the um, the kilohertz or the hertz frequency to work with your brain in a certain way. Now, so far, when people have used sounds and music to, to have a sort of very specific effect on people, it's been in a negative sense. So there's been a famous example of there's a device that you can buy um, which you... It's called the mosquito, and if it's where pesky teens hang out, and you don't want those teens hanging out there because, you know, they're talking about Snapchat and probably carrying flick knives and, you know, all those kind of things that teens do, you can install this uh, device outside in in a public place, and it makes an incredibly high frequency noise that um, us adults can't hear because our hearing is deteriorated in the meantime. But it's very loud, very annoying and it makes teens go away. Now, the device is fairly expensive, but it does kind of work. It annoys teens. Teens move somewhere else. Although, while that does sound like a bit of sort of biological trickery, and and it is, um, I did read somewhere that there was a lo-fi solution to it, and that was just to play Barry Manilow's songs uh, out loud where teens hang out, and they think it's so uncool they move on. So that you can use music in a sort of a physiological or psychological way to annoy teens. Uh, and that's a good piece of information for all of us. I... Uh, Sorry, go on. Oh, uh, and I was going to say, and then the other use that you've, perhaps a lot of us have, have used of, of music or sound in a psychological way is the use of white noise. Whether you've uh, 
you know, done something like detuned a radio and put it next to a baby who's crying and it's a desperate hope that it lulls them to sleep. And actually, it works pretty well to do that. Or whether you've used a white noise generator to meditate or to, to have a nap. Um, there is some, it isn't just the sort of the noise itself, it's the effect it has on your brain and the interpretation of sound that sort of calms the mind and lets you drift off to sleep. Yeah, I have a feeling, didn't we talk about some of these music weapons when we discussed an earlier article about uh, the power of music and yeah. soft brain hacking? Correct. And we, we talked about the way that maybe pop music was being weaponized to deliver subliminal messages. I want to hear about the, the positive outcomes now that you've, that you've gotten from healthcare. Like, what measurable effects of sound and music could could we have that would actually i don't know get get my spotify subscription covered by my yes. german health insurance yes uh good luck with that uh but yes well i mean the thing is that, that you know that um there's two things to think about here which is we're in a very very overstimulated world and uh, too much noise is measurably bad for you so to, it doesn't have to be any specific noises but anything which is just persistent or too loud or too varied or too much is just overwhelming for the human mind. So um, you really want to achieve some sort of balance. And perhaps if you can't escape lots of noise, you need to focus on a certain type of noise which actually has a, um, a measurable difference. Um, so you're saying the noise that's good for me is actually noise that's more like silence? Uh, well, yeah, the, the kind of it's the kind. I guess there's, there's a parallel between silence and that very sort of the, the calm of not very much noise happening, and when the brain tunes into something that it likes, the, 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 stim, the stimulation or lack of stimulation actually has a similar effect. So if you can focus on just that's why people wear noise-cancelling headphones, for instance. It cancels out a lot of the noise, and that silence is calming. But also, if you really focus on some pop music that you really like, it's you're going to have a double whammy there. If you're, focus, you're focusing your mind, but you're also listening to something that you really enjoy. There's a company called Sync Music, um, and they've found that um, specific types of music uh, can actually do measurably amazing things. When I say measurably, these are not enormous needle-moving changes. They're very small percentage changes. But if you add all these up, you can have a measurable effect on, on people's health, actual health. So um, the right kind of music, and perhaps it's worth clarifying here, that the right kind of music means uh, melodies that work for in different ways for different people. So the idea is they find out the kind of... And some melodies are obviously more calming than others. You're probably not going to find a lot of Rammstein uh, music in this in, in their catalogue. But they use different types of music, and they analyse the brain patterns of people using it. And what they found is that by listening to this music a lot, you can improve memory function, and you can measure that, of course. Um, if people who have severe head trauma, it can actually help. Um, sort of re-stimulate the synapses in the right kind of way by calming one area and stimulating another area in a positive way and or just help you with stress management. Um, they also found that, um, I think it was this company, or I think yes, it was this company, they found that uh, people who had had surgery and were taking very strong opiates afterwards as part of their recovery process 
um, if you also took a prescription of listening to certain types of music for a certain amount of time at certain times during that same period of recovery, it actually measurably reduced the number of people who got addicted to those opiates. Wow. So it's, it is measurably effective for, let's say, more psychological issues. I'm not going to listen to some music and it's going to help me with my broken arm. It's not, it's, it's not actually going to help the body sort of heal, but it will help uh, your... Um, it, it will help how painful it, it feels. It, so, so you can, a bit like doing um, mindfulness meditation, you can ask someone how stressed they feel, do some exercises, and then ask how stressed they feel, and they feel then, and generally it's less on a scale of 1 to 10. You can do the same with pain analysis, and they find that using this type of music... It distracts people from the pain, if you like, um, because all, this is all sort of, you know, interpreted through the individual. And with the right kind of music that you find for the right person, yeah, it changes how they interpret the pain and how um, uh, th they feel about the pain that they got from the broken arm. Okay, and decreasing stress. I mean, stress has a physical component as well right doesn't your Correct. your immune system works better when you're not under stress maybe you do have better cell regeneration and uh, you know you, you yeah. could have a physical no no the, the, to, to, totally correct and and when you uh yes there are those knock-on effects and like anything of this as you can imagine it's it's a it's an effect that grows over time and in small percentages but it does work another example is that you know, certain types of music um, trigger dopamine release in the brain. So, like the really like music that you really buy into, that you really love, those kind of the music that gives you big shivers of excitement and pleasure. That's dopamine, a small amount, but a, a real physical reaction. And for for example, for people who have a, a brain injuries or brain-based um, conditions like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, releasing extra dopamine may have a long-term a beneficial effect if you do it regularly there's certainly for example there's a lot of evidence to say that if you keep your brain active by doing let's say sudoku or sort of word number puzzles it, it, it is beneficial for um delaying the onset of alzheimer's and similarly uh, it's it's a kind of mental exercise but it's also pleasure giving and and just the act of that releases chemicals that are good for your mind yeah and you said earlier you know maybe not ramstein but Actually, I've, I've heard or read that metal music, because it is as kind of complex melodically, um, it can have similar effects to the brain as classical music does. And everyone says, oh, listening to classical music, you know, makes you smarter, or more focused or more relaxed. And if, if it also has to do with the music that you like... I'm going to use metal as medicine. No, 100%, and you should. And um, there's, yes, and this is how it varies from person to person. And the, there is music which kind of, across the, there's a, a famous playlist that was uh, put together called 10 Songs That Will Get You High. And basically, there were songs which have sonic qualities which, on average, should make people, people feel better after listening to all of them. And some of these were um, Godspeed You Black Emperor songs. And uh, another one of them was uh, a Led Zeppelin song. So it, you're not restricted to kind of like whale music, ambient Brian Eno stuff. I did listen to that playlist in preparation for yeah. the podcast. I'm sad to report the playlist slaps. 
But it didn't get me high. It didn't get you high. As far as I know. Well, I mean, maybe it's repeat listenings. But of course, that's a very averaged out one. But, you know, one thing that, for example, Spotify are doing is they're investing incredibly heavily in, in, in data analysis, the feedback loop of what people do when they listen to this song, what do they do next. If they could combine that with some sort of data on mood, behavior, how people are feeling, it, it, they really genuinely could uh, compile an individual podcast, that, uh, individual playlist that is changes through the, according to the time of day and where, you're, where they know on average your mood is, or if they sense like a spike in heart rate because you're anxious, they could play, the players could change to give you calming music. And for people who listen to music a lot of the day, which is a lot of people, um, it, it could make a massive measurable difference to their mental and therefore physical health. And, and, and that actual, this, we're not very far from that. And like you say, if the music that makes you feel good is metal, then Spotify or your streaming service of choice would know that and would drop in the, the correct songs at the correct time. And, and they are actively trying to build this kind of, this kind of sort of body metadata built around, around music. Yeah, I felt um, relaxed listening to the playlist in the uh, Power of Music and Soft Brain Hacking article, but I guess there's another kind of placebo effect there where they say, you know, we've determined that listening to this song is going to lower your blood pressure and maybe you do that anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, some of it is is sort of, yes, it sounds like the realms of the obvious. Like, are you feeling down? Play some music to pick you up. And yes, of course, people do that. And again, this is it is this is about. I guess this is a component of a wider system of um, feedback and self care that we might see in the coming years, where we're wearing devices which are measuring how we feel, how we're reacting, and it will be a whole bunch of things that feed in with these small percentage gains. So, if listening to this playlist makes a small percentage gain on your calm when you're having a stressful day at work, and that's combined with I don't know, maybe your devices would sense that you're stressed and so it would automatically turn off your notifications to, so you didn't get more stress through notification overload. And then maybe you would get a reminder to, you know, to, to go, and, you know, go and have a chamomile tea and do, you know, do, do all these things and do some breathing exercises. Um, maybe all of those things together would have an incremental percentage increase that would make you a measurable difference to your life. So it could just be a part of the toolkit of those things. Yeah, that's great. I, I can see how music being part of this holistic approach to a technologically mediated and optimized environment for wellness seems obvious. Yeah, and also it can just be a, a, a measurably good um, additional prescription. You know, if, if just as in the UK um, at the moment, the, the National Health Service um, doesn't just recommend, it prescribes people to do mindfulness meditation to, in in preference to using um, for, for certain people in preference to taking drugs like Prozac because the data shows that it has a, a better measurable increase on well-being for quite a large portion of people it wouldn't hurt if they would say right now go and find the music that works for you and while you are taking these very powerful drugs after breaking your hip or something make sure you listen to this quite a lot and it will have a, a, a um, an impact even if it even if it's just a placebo. It doesn't matter if it has a measurable effect. And, you know, looking at brain patterns, it really does have a measurable effect. So, I mean, so to wrap it up, I, I could honestly see a future where 
maybe there is some sort of health care plan kind of integration with your streaming service for certain sorts of music. Uh, because I guess, of course, if you're listening to a very special uh, playlist that is designed to make you calm, you don't want adverts popping up in the middle. So maybe you would get prescribed certain playlists that had no ads that Spotify struck some sort of deal with health services for. Well, that's it. Um, thanks for joining me in the shed, uh, Catherine. And uh, I hope that you listeners at home could uh, fully enjoy not only the trains, but the dance school below the shed um, uh, next time we will find an equally noisy place uh, to record from but in the meantime don't forget to visit montag.wtf to read more of tomorrow's stories today to read our recent discussions on health tech and body implants the future of creativity the future of money and the future of work and play and happiness and I can't stress how great the print issues are so please order one um, you guaranteed will enjoy it um, and if you want to stay in touch you can uh, hear about our latest posts and what we're doing via Grover's Facebook and Twitter feeds links are below the podcast you can also email us at montag at grover.com that's grover.com because Grover now has the Grover URL well done Grover uh, next time on the montage we'll crack open a brand new bottle of Targ and poke our noses into issue 4 for the first time uh, episode 16 will feature some utterly revelatory stuff including everything someone who knows nothing about cryptocurrency needs to know about cryptocurrency by someone who knows nothing about cryptocurrency and microtransactions and your soul learn how psychological ma manipulation techniques are parting you from your hard-earned cash and how microtransactions aren't just for video games anymore. So that's it from me, Joe Sparrow, editor of Montag, and from Catherine in the corner of the shed. Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for listening, and I uh, hope to hear from you next time here on The Montage. Goodbye and welcome to the future. The Montage podcast is giving its listeners an exclusive 10% discount. Just visit Grover.com, select your tech, and use the code MONTAG10. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-1-0.